This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Harnick. Anthony Trollope, Barchester Towers, Chapter 37. The Signora Neroni, the Countess de Courcy, and Mrs. Prudy meet each other at Ullathorne. And now there were new arrivals. Just as Eleanor reached the drawing-room, the signora was being wheeled into it. She had been brought out of the carriage into the dining-room, and there placed on a sofa, and was now in the act of entering the other room by the joint aid of her brother and sister, Mr. Arabin, and two servants in livery. She was all in her glory, and looked so pathetically happy, so full of affliction and grace, was so beautiful, so pitiable, and so charming, that it was almost impossible not to be glad she was there. Miss Thorne was unaffectedly glad to welcome her. In fact, the signora was a sort of lion, and though there was no drop of the leon-hunter blood in Miss Thorne's veins, she nevertheless did like to see attractive people at her house. The signora was attractive, and on her first settlement in the dining-room she had whispered two or three soft feminine words into Miss Thorne's ear, which at the moment had quite touched that lady's heart. "'Oh, Miss Thorne, where is Miss Thorne?' she said as soon as her attendants had placed her in her position just before one of the windows from whence she could see all that was going on upon the lawn. "'How am I to thank you for permitting a creature like me to be here?' "'But if you knew the pleasure you give me, I am sure you would excuse the trouble I bring with me.' and as she spoke she squeezed the spinster's little hand between her own. "'We are delighted to see you here,' said Miss Thorne. "'You give us no trouble at all, and we think it a great favour conferred by you to come and see us. Don't we, Wilfred?' "'A very great favour indeed,' said Mr. Thorne, with a gallant bow, but of a somewhat less cordial welcome, than that conceded by his sister. Mr. Thorne had heard, perhaps, more of the antecedents of his guest than his sister had done, and had not as yet undergone the power of the signora's charms. But while the mother of the last of the Neros was thus in her full splendour, with crowds of people gazing at her, and the elite of the company standing round her couch, her glory was paled by the arrival of the Countess de Courcy. Miss Thorne had now been waiting three hours for the Countess, and could not therefore but show very evident gratification when the arrival at last took place. She and her brother, of course, went off to welcome the titled grandees, and with them, alas, went many of the signora's admirers. 
Oh, Mr. Thorne, said the countess, while in the act of being disrobed of her fur cloaks and re-robed in her gauze shawls, what dreadful roads you have! Perfectly frightful! It happened that Mr. Thorne was waywarden for the district, and not liking the attack, began to excuse his roads. Oh, yes, indeed they are, said the countess, not minding him in the least. Perfectly dreadful, are they not, Margareta? Why, my dear Miss Thorne, we left Courcy Castle just at eleven. It was only just past eleven. Was it not, George? And just past one, I think you mean, said the Honourable George, turning from the group and eyeing the Signora through his glass. The Signora gave him back his own, as the saying is, and more with it, so that the young nobleman was forced to avert his glance and drop his glass. I stay, Thorn, whispered he. Who the deuce is that on the sofa? Dr. Stanhope's daughter, whispered back Mr. Thorne. Signora Neroni, she calls herself. Whistled the Honourable George. The devil she is. I have heard no end of stories about that filly. You must positively introduce me, Thorne. You positively must. Mr. Thorne, who was respectability itself, did not quite like having a guest about whom the Honourable George de Courcy had heard no end of stories, but he couldn't help himself. He merely resolved that before he went to bed he would let his sister know somewhat of the history of the lady she was so willing to welcome. The innocence of Miss Thorne at her time of life was perfectly charming, but even innocence may be dangerous. George may say what he likes, continued the Countess, urging her excuses to Miss Thorne. I am sure we were past the castle gate before twelve, weren't we, Margareta? Upon my word, I don't know, said Lady Margareta, for I was half asleep but I do know that I was called sometime in the middle of the night and was dressing myself before daylight. Wise people, when they are in the wrong, always put themselves right by finding fault with the people against whom they have sinned. Lady de Courcy was a wise woman, and therefore having treated Miss Thorne very badly by staying away till three o'clock, she assumed the offensive and attacked Mr. Thorne's roads. Her daughter, not less wise, attacked Miss Thorne's early hours. The art of doing this is among the most precious of those usually cultivated by persons who know how to live. There is no withstanding it. Who can go systematically to work? and having done battle with the primary accusation, and settled that, then bring forward a counter-charge and support that also. Life is not long enough for such labours. A man in the right relies easily on his rectitude, and therefore goes about unarmed. His very strength is his weakness. 
A man in the wrong knows that he must look to his weapons. His very weakness is his strength. The one is never prepared for combat, the other is always ready. Therefore, it is that in this world the man that is in the wrong almost invariably conquers the man that is in the right and invariably despises him. A man must be an idiot or else an angel who after the age of forty shall attempt to be just to his neighbours. Many like the Lady Margareta have learned their lesson at a much earlier age. But this, of course, depends on the school in which they have been taught. Poor Miss Thorne was altogether overcome. She knew very well that she had been ill-treated, and yet she found herself making apologies to Lady de Courcy. To do her ladyship justice, she received them very graciously and allowed herself with her train of daughters to be led towards the lawn. There were two windows in the drawing-room wide open for the countess to pass through, but she saw that there was a woman on a sofa at the third window, and that that woman had, as it were, a following attached to her. Her ladyship therefore determined to investigate the woman. The de Courses were hereditarily short-sighted, and had been so for thirty centuries at least. So Lady de Courcy, who, when she entered the family, had adopted the family habits, did as her son had done before her, and taking her glass to investigate the Signora Neroni, pressed in among the gentlemen who surrounded the couch, and bowed slightly to those whom she chose to honour by her acquaintance. In order to get to the window, she had to pass close to the front of the couch, and as she did so, she stared hard at the occupant. The occupant, in return, stared hard at the countess. The countess, who, since her countesship commenced, had been accustomed to see all eyes, not royal, ducal, or marquesal, fall before her own, paused as she went on, raised her eyebrows, and stared even harder than before. But she had now to do with one who cared little for countesses. It was, one may say, impossible for mortal man or woman to abash Madeleine Neroni. She opened her large, bright, lustrous eyes, wider and wider, till she seemed to be all eyes. She gazed up into the lady's face, not as though she did it with an effort, but as if she delighted in doing it. She used no glass to assist her effrontery, and needed none. The faintest possible smile of derision played round her mouth, and her nostrils were slightly dilated, as if in sure anticipation of her triumph. And it was sure. The Countess de Courcy, in spite of her thirty centuries, and de Courcy Castle, and the fact that Lord de Courcy was Grand Master of the Ponies to the Prince of Wales, had not a chance with her. 
At first the little circlet of gold wavered in the countess's hand, then the hand shook, then the circlet fell. The countess's head tossed itself into the air, and the countess's feet shambled out to the lawn. She did not, however, go so fast, but what she heard the signora's voice asking, Who on earth is that woman, Mr. Slope? That is Lady de Courcy. Oh, ah, I might have supposed so. Ha, ha, ha. Well, that is as good as a play. It was as good as a play to any there who had eyes to observe it and wit to comment on what they observed. But the Lady de Courcy soon found a congenial spirit on the lawn. There she encountered Mrs. Prudie, and as Mrs. Prudie was not only the wife of a bishop, but was also the cousin of an earl, Lady de Courcy considered her to be the fittest companion she was likely to meet in that assemblage. They were accordingly delighted to see each other. Mrs. Prudy by no means despised the countess, and as this countess lived in the county and within a sort of extensive visiting distance of Barchester, she was glad to have this opportunity of ingratiating herself. "'My dear Lady de Courcy, I am so delighted,' said she, looking as little grim as it was in her nature to do. "'I hardly expected to see you here.' It is such a distance, and then, you know, such a crowd. And such roads, Mrs. Prudy. I really wonder how the people ever get about. But I don't suppose they ever do. Well, I really don't know, but I suppose not. The thorns don't, I know, said Mrs. Prudy. Very nice person, Miss Thorne, isn't she? Oh, delightful, and so queer. I have known her these twenty years. A great pet of mine is dear Miss Thorne. She is so very strange, you know. She always makes me think of the Eskimos and the Indians. Isn't her dress quite delightful? Delightful, said Mrs. Prudy. I wonder now whether she paints. Did you ever see such colour? Oh, of course, said Lady de Courcy. That is, I have no doubt she does. But Mrs. Prudy, who is that woman on the sofa by the window? Just step this way and you will see her. There. And the countess led her to a spot where she could plainly see the signora's well-remembered face and figure. She did not, however, do so without being equally well seen by the signora. Look, look, said that lady to Mr. Slope, who was still standing near her. See the high spiritualities and temporalities of the land in league together, and all against poor me. I will wager my bracelet, Mr. Slope, against your next sermon, that they have taken up their position there on purpose to pull me to pieces. Well, I can't rush to the combat, but I know how to protect myself if the enemy come near me. 
But the enemy knew better. They could gain nothing by contact with the Signora Neroni, and they could abuse her as they pleased at a distance from her on the lawn. She is that horrid Italian woman, Lady de Courcy. You must have heard of her. What Italian woman? said her ladyship, quite alive to the coming story. I don't think I have heard of any Italian woman coming into the country. She doesn't look Italian either. Oh, you must have heard of her, said Mrs. Prudy. No, she is not absolutely Italian. She is Dr. Stanhope's daughter. Dr. Stanhope, the prebendary, and she calls herself the Signora Neroni. Oh, <laughs> exclaimed the countess. I was sure you had heard of her, continued Mrs. Prudy. I don't know anything about her husband. They do say that some man named Neroni is still alive. I believe she did marry such a man abroad, but I do not at all know who or what he was. Oh! <laughs> exclaimed the countess, shaking her head with much intelligence as every additional H fell from her lips. I know all about it now. I have heard George mention her. George knows all about her. George heard about her in Rome. She is an abominable woman at any rate, said Mrs. Prudy. Insufferable, said the countess. She made her way into the palace once, before I knew anything about her, and I cannot tell you how dreadfully indecent her conduct was. Was it? said the delighted countess. Insufferable, said the prelatess. But why does she lie on a sofa? asked Lady de Courcy. She has only one leg, replied Mrs. Prudy. Only one leg, said Lady de Courcy, who felt to a certain degree dissatisfied that the signora was thus incapacitated. Was she born so? Oh, no, said Mrs. Prudy, and her ladyship felt somewhat recomforted by the assurance. She had two, but that Signor Neroni beat her, I believe, till she was obliged to have one amputated. At any rate, she entirely lost the use of it. Unfortunate creature, said the countess, who herself knew something of matrimonial trials. Yes, said Mrs. Prudy, one would pity her in spite of her past bad conduct if she now knew how to behave herself. But she doesn't. She is the most insolent creature I ever put my eyes on. Indeed she is, said Lady de Courcy. And her conduct with men is so abominable that she is not fit to be admitted into any lady's drawing-room. Dear me, said the countess, becoming again excited, happy, and merciless. You saw that man standing near her, the clergyman with the red hair. Yes, yes, she has absolutely ruined that man. The bishop, or I should rather take the blame on myself, for it was I, I brought him down from London to Barchester. He is a tolerable preacher, 
an active young man, and I therefore introduced him to the bishop. That woman, Lady de Courcy, has got hold of him, and has so disgraced him that I am forced to require that he shall leave the palace, and I doubt very much whether he won't lose his gown. Why, what an idiot the man must be, said the countess. You don't know the intriguing villainy of that woman, said Mrs. Prudy, remembering her torn flounces. But you say she has only got one leg. She is as full of mischief as though she had ten. Look at her eyes, Lady de Courcy. Did you ever see such eyes in a decent woman's head? Indeed, I never did, Mrs. Prudy. And her effrontery, and her voice. I quite pity her poor father, who is really a good sort of man. Dr. Stanhope, isn't he? Yes, Dr. Stanhope. He is one of our prebendaries, a good, quiet sort of man himself. But I am surprised that he should let his daughter conduct herself as she does. I suppose he can't help it, said the countess. But a clergyman, you know, Lady de Courcy, he should at any rate prevent her from exhibiting in public if he cannot induce her to behave at home. But he's to be pitied. I believe he has a desperate life of it with the lot of them. That apish-looking man there, with the long beard and the loose trousers, he's the woman's brother. He's nearly as bad as she is. They are both of them infidels. Infidels, said Lady de Courcy, and their father a prebendary. Yes, and likely to be the new dean too said Mrs. Prudy. Oh, yes, poor dear Dr. Trefoil, said the countess, who had once in her life spoken to that gentleman. I was so distressed to hear it, Mrs. Prudy. And so Dr. Stanhope is to be the new dean. He comes of an excellent family, and I wish him success in spite of his daughter. Perhaps, Mrs. Prudy, when he's dean, they will be better able to see the error of their ways. To this Mrs. Prudy said nothing. Her dislike of the Signora Neroni was too deep to admit of her even hoping that that lady should see the error of her ways. Mrs. Prudy looked on the Signora as one of the lost, one of those beyond the reach of Christian charity, and was therefore able to enjoy the luxury of hating her without the drawback of wishing her eventually well out of her sins. Any further conversation between these congenial souls was prevented by the advent of Mr. Thorne, who came to lead the countess to the tent. Indeed, he had been desired to do so some ten minutes since, but he had been delayed in the drawing-room by the signora. She had contrived to detain him, to get him near to her sofa, and at last to make him seat himself on a chair close to her beautiful arm. The fish took the bait, was hooked and caught and landed. Within that ten minutes he had heard the whole of the signora's history, 
in such strains as she chose to use in telling it. He learned from the lady's own lips the whole of that mysterious tale to which the Honourable George had merely alluded. He discovered that the beautiful creature lying before him had been more sinned against than sinning. She had owned to him that she had been weak, confiding, and indifferent to the world's opinion, and that she had therefore been ill-used, deceived, and evil-spoken of. She had spoken to him of her mutilated limb, her youth destroyed in fullest bloom, her beauty robbed of its every charm, her life blighted, her hopes withered, and as she did so, a tear dropped from her eye to her cheek. She had told him of these things and asked for his sympathy. What could a good-natured, genial, Anglo-Saxon squire Thorne do but promise to sympathize with her? Mr. Thorne did promise to sympathize, promised also to come and see the last of the Neros, to hear more of those fearful Roman days, of those light and innocent but dangerous hours which flitted by so fast on the shores of Como, and to make himself the confidant of the Signora's sorrows. We need hardly say that he dropped all idea of warning his sister against the dangerous lady. He had been mistaken, never so much mistaken in his life. He had always regarded that Honourable George as a coarse, brutal-minded young man. Now he was more convinced than ever that he was so. It was by such men as the Honourable George that the reputations of such women as Madeleine Neroni were imperiled and damaged. He would go and see the lady in her own house. He was fully sure in his own mind of the soundness of his own judgment. If he found her, as he believed he should do, an injured, well-disposed, warm-hearted woman, he would get his sister Monica to invite her out to Ullathorn. No, said she, as at her instance he got up to leave her and declared that he himself would attend upon her once. No, no, my friend, I positively put a veto upon your doing so. What in your own house, with an assemblage round you, such as there is here? Do you wish to make every woman hate me, and every man stare at me? I lay a positive order on you not to come near me again today. Come and see me at home. It is only at home that I can talk. It is only at home that I really can live and enjoy myself. My days of going out, days such as these, are rare indeed. Come and see me at home, Mr. Thorne, and then I will not bid you to leave me. It is, we believe, common with young men of five and twenty to look on their seniors, on men of, say, double their own age, as so many stocks and stones, stocks and stones, that is, in regard to feminine beauty. There never was a greater mistake. Women, indeed, generally know better, but on this subject men of one age are thoroughly ignorant of what is the very nature of mankind of other ages. 
no experience of what goes on in the world no reading of history no observation of life has any effect in teaching the truth men of fifty don't dance mazurkas being generally too fat and wheezy nor do they sit for the hour together on river banks at their mistress's feet being somewhat afraid of rheumatism but for real true love love at first sight love to devotion love that robs a man of his sleep love that will gaze an eagle blind love that will hear the lowest sound when the suspicious tread of theft is stopped love that is like a hercules still climbing trees in the hesperides we believe the best ages from forty-five to seventy up to that men are generally given to mere flirting at the present moment mr thorne eight at fifty was over head and ears in love at first sight with the signora madeline visi nerone neta stanhope nevertheless he was sufficiently master of himself to offer his arm with all propriety to lady de courcy and the countess graciously permitted herself to be led to the tent such had been miss thorne's orders as she had succeeded in inducing the bishop to lead old lady knoll to the top of the dining-room one of the baronets was sent off in quest of mrs proudie and found that lady on the lawn not in the best of humours mr thorne and the countess had left her too abruptly she had in vain looked about for an attendant chaplain or even a stray curate they were all drawing long bows with the young ladies at the bottom of the lawn or finding places for their graceful co-toxophilites in some snug corner of the tent in such position mrs proudie had been wont in earlier days to fall back upon mr slope but now she could never fall back upon him again she gave her head one shake as she thought of her lone position and that shake was as good as a week deducted from mr slope's longer sojourn at barchester sir harkaway gorse however relieved her present misery though his doing so by no means mitigated the sinning chaplain's doom and now the eating and drinking began in earnest dr grantly to his great horror found himself leagued to mrs clantantram mrs clantantram had a great regard for the archdeacon which was not cordially returned and when she coming up to him whispered in his ear come archdeacon i am sure you won't begrudge an old friend the favour of your arm and then proceeded to tell him the whole history of her roquelaur he resolved that he would shake her off before he was fifteen minutes older but latterly the archdeacon had not been successful in his resolutions and on the present occasion mrs clantantram stuck to him till the banquet was over dr gwynne got a baronet's wife and mrs grantly fell to the lot of a baronet charlotte stanhope attached herself to mr harding in order to make room for bertie 
who succeeded in sitting down in the dining-room next to Mrs. Bold. To speak sooth, now that he had love in earnest to make, his heart almost failed him. Eleanor had been right glad to avail herself of his arm, seeing that Mr. Slope was hovering nigh her. In striving to avoid that terrible charybdis of a slope, she was in great danger of falling into an unseen Scylla, on the other hand, that Scylla being Bertie Stanhope. Nothing could be more gracious than she was to Bertie. She almost jumped at his proffered arm. Charlotte perceived this from a distance and triumphed in her heart. Bertie felt it and was encouraged. Mr. Slope saw it and glowered with jealousy. Eleanor and Bertie sat down to table in the dining room, and as she took her seat at his right hand, she found that Mr. Slope was already in possession of the chair at her own. As these things were going on in the dining room, Mr. Arabin was hanging enraptured and alone over the Signora's sofa, and Eleanor from her seat could look through the open door and see that he was doing so. End of chapter 37